Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. I welcome you to Radio Wolf, our international webcast for consciousness and culture. I'm very happy to have with me Diane Mushu Hamilton. Diane, welcome. Thank you, Thomas. I'm really happy to be here. You may say some words about you. Uh, Diane is a professional mediator, author, facilitator, teacher of Zen meditation. Diane facilitates Big Mind, Big Heart, a process developed to help elicit the insight of Zen Western audiences for Western audience. She's the co-founder of Two Arrow Zen, a center of Zen practice and study in Soltek City in Torrey. And Diane is also author of several books. Her newest book is called Compassionate Conversations, How to Speak and Listen from the Heart with co-authors Gabriel Wilson and Kimberly Law. Diane, compassionate conversation. You have decades of experience as a mediator. Mm-hmm. Being a mediator, being a Zen teacher, being a practitioner, conversation seems to be a big part of your life. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What would you say is um, the main lesson about having conversations, particularly in difficult situations? Mm-hmm. What makes a difference in having successful, difficult conversations? I think it's important for people to understand that like everything else in the universe, our ability to have conversations that are enlivened, that are passionate, that are challenging, and that are ultimately successful, um, those skills are evolving. And we're learning more and more all the time about how to do it. And so I feel that I, I like to place the, the entire subject matter within the framework of evolution because we're growing, we're changing, and we're getting better. And so having some experience of success and seeing that it's possible and continuing to practice within that understanding that all of this is growing and changing. When I uh, learned about uh, that you wrote this book with your book, uh, and uh, knowing you also for quite some time and knowing your background in conflict resolution, I I immediately had the impulse to talk with you about the book because I think um, in our times, and I'm talking politics right now. Mm-hmm, right? Sure. Right now, conflict resolution seems to be more pressing, more important, more central to our evolution as a species. We are, and in America more than in, in other places, uh, in a spiral of confrontation. Mm-hmm. and of uh, not dialogue, uh, but uh, maybe uh, you uh, even could say close to or in the starting point of civil war. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it's really an exaggeration when, when, I, when I hear and, and listen what's, what's happening in the U.S. and in many places in the world uh, with the crisis that we have, there seems to be a process of fragmentation and polarization mm-hmm. and the capacity to find mutual understanding 
in some way seems to be a capacity that is tremendously needed at this point. Mm-hmm. So mediator is not just a, a private uh, occupation right now. Mediator is something that we need for the development of our societies, if I may say so. <clears throat> and I'm just curious um, for our audience, uh, with your experience um, in consciousness, in professional mediation, and also with your interest in the development of culture and society, how can we handle this? What is needed to create forms of dialogue where two sides that are basically uh, in forms of uh, at least psychological warfare mm-hmm. have to find a new way to, in the end, uh, be in one society again and develop this one society and this one culture and um, in the end find a way to live and to prosper together. So how to do this? <laughs> Sorry, you. Uh, Thomas, just everyone who's listening, Thomas just asked me to solve the world's problems. <laughs> because the truth is, if we could solve this problem, we could solve the problem of climate. We could solve the pro- problem of economic justice. We could solve the problem of just about any, if human beings could get along, we could solve just about every problem we encounter. So it's at, it's at the root of everything, what you're asking. It is the root of everything. Let me ask the other way around, uh, uh, not on the level of solving the world problems, but, I mean, you worked as a mediator at court. Yes. And, uh, you had tough cases where yes. I saw that people did not very much like each other and did not very much understand each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, uh, I guess not only, but also real success. Uh, what created the success? Well, so you mentioned two things, and I think it's important for our listeners to um, to think about two things. So, Thomas, I'm going to break right here because I'm assuming you can edit. Is that fair right now? Okay. So you mentioned two things, both of which we need to pay attention to. And one is the unity the commonality, the sameness that humans require to function together, to evolve together, to create, as you said, well-being for one another. The other side of that is are these differences that arise. And we tend to, in our thinking, not realize that we need skill sets in both domains, that the work we do with meditation our listening skills, empathy, um, uh, all of those skills will create unity. So, so there's this whole dimension in which we need to both create and recognize our inherent unity and our inherent commonality as humanity. And that's a particular set of skills. And when, when human beings feel the same, when we belong, we're a part of, we're the same as, the human nervous system relaxes. There's an experience of safety, of openness, of, of at-homeness that's, that's very felt in the, in the physicality and in the body. And, and phenomenologically, 
we are one. We are the same as all things in this universe. And that's what we're taught through both our spiritual teaching and our meditative discipline. You know, our, we evolved in small groups of tribes that our survival was dependent on our togetherness, our sameness, our functioning. And we were threatened often by difference a difference in another tribe or another group of people that maybe we had a, a resource conflict. And so that difference was threatening. And so it's important to understand that while sameness creates relaxation in the body, that difference is exciting to the nervous system. It's a very, very different palette of, uh, you might say, chemicals in the brain. As soon as there's a difference that's perceived, let's say, between me and another human being or between us and them, the human nervous system will start to excite and will start to drip a little bit of adrenaline, cortisol, the stress hormones and the excitement hormones will start to drip. And that sense of safety and relaxation starts to disappear. And excitement and difference is actually how the universe evolves itself. Now, that's a, that's a big conversation, but we need both. And I'll talk more about that in just a minute. So when we experience a difference, we're excited, but that excitement very, very quickly becomes threat. And as soon as it becomes threat, it's difficult to feel our sameness at all. All we want to do is kind of run for cover with people who are like us, who are the same. So part of what I'm working with is the actual embodied experience of unity and of differentiation or or how to work more, uh, you might say, on a deeper level with the the whole phenomenon of sameness and difference. Now, the extreme, of course, of difference is what you're talking about. It's polarity that is intensified by the media, that is intensified by the Internet, that is tens- intensified by, particularly in the stage, just the tremendous differences in, in cultures here. I mean, this is a... a you know, we're, we're, we're held together by a sameness, but we're every bit as diverse as the entire European continent in terms of these differences. So, and that eventually becomes conflict, and if that becomes armed, then we're in real trouble, and that's kind of what you're describing. The difference has gotten so extreme that we have to be really careful right now. Of course, I'm aware of that... Uh, um you won't solve the problems of the world. <laughs> At least uh, uh, not uh, e- that easily. But I'm at the same time very aware that the skills that you have, the experience that you have, mm-hmm. is a tremendous contribution. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of factors t- that create the crisis of our world. And uh, yes. we, are, we are not able to uh, kind of ad- even address uh, uh, all of that. Of course not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's, uh, but there are some parts of the roots of this crisis mm-hmm. that have to do with uh, our capacity to hold uh, unity and diversity together. Exactly. And the, the capacity to respect our otherness mm-hmm. and embrace our sameness, mm-hmm. if I may say so. Absolutely. That's a great way to say it. And it's interesting that you kind of uh, also uh, brought it down to our uh, chemical response uh, to otherness and, sa- and sameness, mm-hmm. and that you made this uh, in- interesting distinction and I didn't think about that uh, uh, as long as uh, the other is not threatening, 
there's something exciting about it, and there is a kind of a tipping point where, where excitement changes to fear mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and fear responses. And I guess uh, what um, creates uh, the capacity to not fall apart is in some way uh, related to our capacity to trust. Mm-hmm. And in your work and also uh, what you wrote in your book, um, uh, how can we work this to appreciate both? Because uh, you also brought this in the environmental context. We, we need also to appreciate uh, that we are differentiated because that's our learning process where we also, uh, through the acceptance uh, that uh, the other are having, holding a different perspective, uh, we are able to also broaden our perspectives. There's something that's very needed also in development of us as a species. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're not doing a good job right now. And uh, is there something where we can learn skills uh, to do it better? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really think so. And I think that the, you know, we can maybe towards the end of our conversation talk a little bit more about the evolution of human culture and the skills that start to emerge as we evolve and develop. But prior to that, I would say that um, listening is the skill that's associated to creating unity in relationship. Because if you and I are having a disagreement, Thomas, and we're both advocating for our perspective, you know, in the way that there's kind of a traditional sort of competitive idea that we can simply persuade or influence the other into our perspective, that actually isn't quite how it works. How it works is for one of us at least to be willing to set our perspective aside for a moment and to genuinely receive the other's point of view, even if we don't agree, to just simply receive it and become the same as. So if you and I are competing over something or we're um, conflicting over something and, and you make the choice for a moment to simply set your perspective aside to receive mine, whether you agree or disagree is a slightly different matter, but just to take it in, you will notice that by becoming the same as me and listening, that both of us start to calm down, that our nervous systems start to relax, that we no longer feel the separation and the intensity, and there's just this quality of understanding. Now, it can sound simple. It even borders on being somewhat sentimental, but I really want to really want to emphasize to your listeners that your capacity to listen has everything to do with your capacity to create unity, for your capacity to regulate the nervous system, for your capacity to create a feeling of belonging and safety in your relationships, in your meetings, in your organizations. It's the number one skill that's related to unity. I mean, it, it, it sounds uh, simple. Uh, it sounds uh, uh, basic uh, and kind of yeah, romantic in that I'll just listen. Mm-hmm. But if I uh, bring kind of a developmental perspective in this, it's uh, easier to listen to someone who lives in a very uh, similar context mm-hmm. than I do. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
of course. So yes. in travel context to listen to each other mm-hmm. um, is in some way, maybe, I'm just assuming it, uh, uh, easier because the contexts that we're holding, the, the perspective, perspectives that we're holding are very related to each other. Well, it's even further than that. When you're listening to someone who basically agrees with you, you're listening to yourself. So there's really no difference. There's nothing that you have to work with. Keep right. going. Mm-hmm. Because where I wanted to go with the question, part of the capacity to listen uh, includes also we are living in a more and more complex society where uh, the differentiation holds different uh, uh, worldviews, different mimetic contexts, different mm-hmm. cultures. Mm-hmm. But the capacity to listen to someone who really comes from a, a completely different mimetic uh, environment is not just the capacity of the heart. It's also uh, related to my capacity to hold complexity and mm-hmm. able to allow or be able to see someone or even mm-hmm. the perspective of someone who comes from a very different place. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, in, the, in the end uh, also related when you said this is part of uh, an evolutionary perspective that we also have to develop our capacities uh, in order to do just the simple thing called listening? So I'm going to model it for just a moment, and I, I would love your audience to tune into this for just a minute. So what I heard you say in, in, in total is I heard you say that listening is, tends to be an easy, much easier thing to do when our views are the same, when we share the same mimetic context, when our worldview is similar, when our way of, of um, communicating, even our style of communication is the same. It becomes much more challenging when our worldviews are different and when there is, to some degree, more complexity. So listening becomes a more challenging um, skill to apply in situations where the differences are greater. And do, does our skill also evolve in relationship to our ability to do that? I'm not sure you asked that question, but it seemed like there was that question at the end. Is yeah. that, did I hear you accurately? Yes. Okay, good. So I'm just going to let the audience just kind of feel for a moment what it's like when we allow our perspectives to join and become one. Because even in this moment, if I fail to kind of take a moment and make sure that Tom, Thomas and I are on the same page, then I can start to answer and we really haven't had that moment of recognition. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's an embodied feeling. It's a feeling state. It's not simply cognitive. And this is the point about real listening and creating unity is it has to be embodied because humans process information much more quickly with the body than with the cognitive mind. So as we evolve, our ability to validate, to receive, to validate multiple perspectives changes. We become better at it. It was one of the things that happened in my experience as a mediator. What, what turned me on to Ken Wilber's developmental work was that I saw some people who could not advocate for their own point of view. I saw other people who could advocate for their own but could not for a moment tolerate someone else's view. 
I saw people that could advocate for their own. They could hear the truth of another. They could take on a third-person perspective as the court. They could think about what they thought in the past and what they might think in the future, and they could take a meta-perspective on everything. And I started to marvel at this difference in people's ability mm -hmm. to take on perspectives. So it evolves. So when one is listening to someone who's, whose perspective is entirely different, we can notice that it will create anxiety in the body. Difference creates excitement in the body. But we can give ourselves a cognitive cue and we can relax and say for just the next five minutes, I'm going to hear this person out and try and find whatever grain of truth in their experience I can find so that I can validate that. So imagine for a moment that I'm speaking to someone who, who is supporting Trump, um, who feels that he's the first person who's really stood up for America since forever, um, who feels that you know, we should be free of regulations and people should have more individuality, that we should protect our borders. And all those values create anxiety in me in some way. And you can imagine, I'm imagining your listeners can empathize with that I'm going to feel uptight about this, these ideas. <clears throat> can I relax for just a moment and say, well, there's something valid around wanting to protect your own culture, right? There's something valid about continuing to make sure that the dignity of the individual is not subsumed, subsumed always in the collective needs. Okay, I can find some truth in that. And there's probably some validity in being able to regulate our borders so that we're not overwhelmed by immigration, that the immigra immigrants we do allow in are given a fair chance and able to find their place in culture. So I can find a kind of a a grain of truth in each of those things. And can I then reflect back that I think that that's legitimate? Now, it may be that I, I might then say, I can see truth in what you're saying. Are you willing to listen now to what I have to say about that, what the dangers of those perspectives are in excess? And I want you to know that politically, I have a set of values that, that overwhelms those truths, and I'm going to take a different stand than you, and that's just how that is. You know, in other words, can we listen and then still assert that we don't fundamentally agree for various reasons? That's a complex task. I mean, just what you just said, what I just modeled is extremely complex. It takes a lot of being in touch with myself and my own views. It takes an ability to free myself and be challenged. I empathize with those challenges and then continue. So, you know, it's a simple thing in one way, but as you said, it's a very complex thing in another way. But it starts to come naturally to the human. We do develop these skills over time. We don't have to avoid political conversations. We don't have to avoid talking about politics. We actually can have differences and really engage them. And we can even stand for our differences and fight for them. We're, we just become better and better at conversation, particularly complex ones. Mm -hmm. So all what you just described um, relates to the capacity uh, to hold complexity of perspectives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this, I would see, uh, mostly at least uh, cognitive capacities that we can develop. But uh, I find it very interesting when you talk about uh, uh, your form of, of, of conversation, you point... Uh, how can we listen and talk from the heart? 
-hmm. How does the heart come in this mm -hmm. whole this complexity? Why, why? What's the centerpiece of the heart in this? Well, there are two dimensions that I've been pointing to. So one is the 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 crude and very simplistic response of the body to feeling safe or feeling threatened. And then the capacity of the mind to include more. And so the mind in some ways can regulate the body. And as we work with the sensations in the body, we can regulate the mind. And I think it's important time to realize that the heart is in the center of the body, right? It isn't as dense as the body and it's not as etheric and flexible as the mind. But in my view, the heart resolves things the mind cannot. The human heart has the capacity in some ways to receive and other perspectives almost better than the mind can. I always tell my own students that, that when we find this center place that suddenly the experience that there's something deep in our humanness that can accommodate our challenges. You know, we're all challenged. Human beings have been challenged since the minute we started to up, walk upright in all kinds of ways, and yet we've grown and we've changed and we've evolved. And, you know, the human heart has been integral to that the entire time because the heart holds paradox. It holds life and it holds death. The part, the... The heart holds the reality of pain and the experience of the relief of suffering. The human heart understands innately our commonalities. It understands that we all um, were born into this mystery. Um, we don't. We know we're part of the universe, but we don't quite know how this all works. And the heart is able to make peace with this fact. Um, Anybody who's done any healing work, any forgiveness work, whether it's individually with your own family or a lover or whether it's your culture, the heart is where healing happens and forgiveness happens. The mind doesn't do it very well. So heart intelligence is at, this, at, at the center of everything I'm talking about. So I'm happy that you asked that. I find it also very interesting that you said the heart understands our commonality. Because usually, uh, when we talk about what we talk about, understanding our communality, we already go to a mental place. Mm -hmm. uh, and it seems, and somehow there's an intuitive obviousness of it, but it's, but it's worth looking into that uh, just understanding this from a mental point of view is not understanding this. Mm -hmm. That the real understanding that you're pointing to uh, is an understanding of the heart. And with my intuition, I'm fully with you, but I would like to understand what you're pointing to because let's say my heart is responding to what you're saying, but I also don't want to bring it down to kind of, oh, we have to be with our heart and just this kind of romantics. I don't want to simplify it in this way. So somehow there is an intuition of the rightness of what you're saying, mm -hmm. but it seems uh, uh, that um, you are you point to, to a different form of understanding than what we usually think what understanding is about. First, is this interpretation right? And second, uh, how would you explain that? 
Well, if you're willing, and feel free to say no, I think I would ask you the question, um, because it was something you and I talked about a little bit earlier, but as in your position as uh, uh, an Austrian with intimacy with the German perspective, um, you know, the, the European continent went through a lot of suffering and a lot of pain in the last, you know, 60 years. Or how long has it been? I don't even remember. Anyway. More than 70. More than 70 now, yeah. So, you know, I can ask you about how you've reconciled that experience of collective pain in your mind and I can ask you how you've reconciled it in your heart. And I'd kind of be interested to have you answer that if you're willing from a mental place and then answer it from your heart center. And maybe we could just listen and see if there's a difference. It's interesting you're asking this question because immediately uh, it lands in very, in very two different places. And mm-hmm. the response are... Uh, uh, the response become a very different responses because I can talk to you about my understanding of what the European continent uh, uh, had to go through and is still going through and uh, the, the karma of our history and the burden of our history, the, com- the complicated history, like every history is complicated. And there's a lot to, to understand and to grapple with mm-hmm. and it holds a lot of detail, uh, but uh, I am not involved in that. Uh, but there's something when you ask, um, let's put it on the heart level, I, I experience myself immediately as a European, as an Austrian, German, uh, and it is, it has a quality, uh, uh, the, the pain, the difficulties, but also the, the learnings have a, have a quality that uh, are mine, that I'm in them. Mm-hmm. And the way I, I deal with this is very much that uh, the pain is not something I think about. The pain is something that I have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we talk in a, in a very different level. And I am not separate of uh, talking about Europe. I am a European Austrian, German, and uh, we are talking the end about me being entangled in all of that what we are talking. And uh, also, um, to come to something that you mentioned, my body is involved very much because all these tensions are just alive uh, because you you open up the question. I, uh, my body has a very strong response to all of that because, yeah, it is what it is. Uh, and it is uh, painful, exciting, scary, all of that. Mm-hmm. And what I'm noticing, and you can you can help me with this, is that the mind will explain it, and there's a way that it doesn't quite include the pain. Mm-hmm. But when you drop to the level of the heart, the first thing that one experiences is the is the um, the both the aspiration and the disappointment and the human suffering and so it puts your heart puts you directly in with the most fundamental quality and it seems to be able to accommodate that feeling state without collapsing around it. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? That's that's very true. 
And there's also some other, there's something else that came to my mind, which is interesting, because when we talk on that level, uh, it is also very apparent how everyone else involved in this has similar emotional responses. They, 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 even people, uh, I feel on quote unquote on the other side of this, whatever that means, uh, in, 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 in the history, in a European history, Germans, English, French, Jewish, uh, gypsy, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, all, 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 all that, uh, well, that evokes a lot of uh, emotions, uh, you are aware that we are really entangled with each other, not just uh, on a theoretical level, but we are. And I see the other with their difficulties, mm-hmm. uh, uh, whatever. And it's a, it's a different form of seeing. Let's put it that way. Well, it's beautiful because as we, again, as we kind of sit in the heart dimension of the conversation, that naturally you presence and empathize with the reality of others. So that's very powerful too, that it suddenly it's not just myself, but it includes everybody else and that there's space for them because the heart is boundless. So there's plenty of room for all these points of view and there's a natural innate feeling for the dilemmas of others. Mm-hmm. So are you saying that uh, we need to develop all of this in order to be able to create mutual understanding in conflict situation? I think what I what I believe is that that I mean I tend to believe Tom and you tell me what you think about this but I tend to believe that consciousness itself is teaching us this and that our job for whatever reason, seems to be to learn it. And I think that we're, you know, that there's a big spectrum, you know, there's an enormous spectrum. There's the cutting edge of our capacities to understand each other, to empathize, to problem solve together, to include one another's well-being, to move as a group together. And then there's the part of us that's more, the, the you might say, the preserving part of evolution that is, still wanting to fight, still wanting to go to war, still wanting to do all that, and there's everything in between. So we're, you and I are having this very refined conversation about how we can understand one another and work together for our mutual well-being. And at the same time, if I were to turn on the news right now, in the States I'd be shown lots of images bordering on violence, bordering on, um, you know, political altercations. You know, it's a really intense intense time, but I have to trust that what the gifts I've been given as a mediator, as a communicator, my ability to bring people together, as you said at the beginning of our call, are really important, even in in the face of this very old, violent human energy, because it's very crude and very simple, and we're used to that. But So I, I tend to put myself in relationship to almost like what I'm being taught as opposed to what I have to learn or develop. Mm-hmm. There's one other element I would like uh, to bring in and ask you about, uh, because all that, my, my, let's say my feeling, my understanding of, 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 of the situation, let's talk about the European situation, because of course this is closer to me. 
uh, I can be aware of it. I can feel all, all of this. Uh, that does not necessarily mean that uh, I'm free of that at all. In mm. fact, feeling all that can even mean that I'm more identified with, I, I know that uh, we Germans or Austrians are not just bad people as we are portrayed, that basically, yes, we did all these crimes, but uh, the, uh, the, the way we were treated is not just it. it. There's a lot of emotional stuff that comes up. That mm-hmm. on, on every side, you, f- you find enough reasons to defend your emotional <laughs> position that, you, that you're holding. Sure. And, and just to be more um, uh, in, uh, in contact with my heart in this, I, let's put it that way, I also can be more in contact with my Austrian heart, mm-hmm. feel how I have to protect my Austrianness against uh, American, imperial, da, 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 whatever. Mm-hmm. So there is another element uh, uh, that I guess is needed also uh, to liberate my heart, if I may say so. What is that? Or would you even agree with what I'm saying? Well, you know, we're, we should pay attention to the fact that we're in the domain of identity and that when, when we're in the domain of identity, which is literally a mind-body um uh, Phenomenon, the, the, uh, the mental construct of identity creates an experience in the body and so forth. Whenever we're in the domain of identity, there are all kinds of issues and memory and loyalties and, you know, imperatives that come up within consciousness. Identity is a very powerful, you could almost think of it as identity as a software program. And when you run it in consciousness, then certain kinds of things arise. But anybody who's engaged in spiritual practice knows that there is also the domain of consciousness, which is beyond identity itself. And I think that that's what you're pointing to. You're mm-hmm. saying in order to be truly available, I also need to be free of identity. Mm-hmm. And that way I'm, my mind can be flexible, attentive, the heart can be open and expansive. And, and I'm even able to encounter my own my own mortality and the mortality of my people and the mortality of the planet in a way that <clears throat> is free. There's a poem by uh, the Sufi poet Hafez, and he says, <clears throat> I've learned so much from God that I can no longer call myself a Christian, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, or a Jew. The truth has revealed so much of itself to me that I can no longer call myself a man, a woman, an angel, or even pure soul. Love has befriended Hafez so completely it has turned to ash and freed me of every concept and image my mind has ever known. So when I hear you describe that place of liberation, you're describing a spiritual reality which can be realized by many, many different methods, but also is responsible for giving us ultimate freedom from both the pain, the history, the suffering, and the dilemmas of identity, of which they're, they're endless. And of course, I, I ask you this also, having 
very much in mind that you are not just a mediator, that you are also a Zen teacher. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my own experience, uh, finding at least um, to some degree uh, s- some liberation from my identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not talking about big spiritual experiences necessarily in this, but just some liberation from who I think I I am and I have to be yeah. uh, mm-hmm. allows me to experience you uh, in a more open way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is this um, something that um, first is needed to have a compassionate conversation? And how can we create a culture that is able to hold all of this? Because it seems to be beside the complexity, the different perspectives that we can hold, uh, the connectedness through our heart, that this dimension of, um, I, I don't have a better word, of inner freedom, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, is necessary to develop these conversations. I'm imagining that the vast majority of your listeners are meditators. And... Um, to see the relationship between meditation, where we practice literally relinquishing identification in order to experience this freedom and this belonging, <clears throat> is probably part of many of your listeners' um, world and, and that understanding. How to bring that understanding into relationship and into, you know, every, people do well on the cushion, and then as soon as they start to interact, as long as everyone's the same in community, you know, we're all kind of behaving as though we're still on the cushion together. It's great. But as soon as a real problem sets in and there are real camps around what people think and believe, you see the limit of that non-identity. So listening becomes the next most important skill. And there's very, very profound similarities between meditation and listening. One comes to stillness. One uh, opens oneself to experience, becomes available. One relinquishes one's attachment to identity. I had a meditation teacher who once said uh, that what made meditation challenging was the experience of a kind of a groundlessness or a free fall. That when you let go of all those reference points in the mind, the first experience is that you're falling. And he used to say that the good news is or the bad news is you're in a free fall, but the good news is there's no bottom. Mm. And the same is true of listening. Listening has that same quality. When we really let go and allow ourselves to hear another perspective, that's the next important skill. And then finally, I would say that then being able to pick up a perspective because it's important, because you care about it, because it needs a place. I heard you say a minute ago, I have to protect the Austrian identity against American imperialism. You know, that you have to pick that up and you have to assert that with me. So that now you're, now you're both free of identity and you're functioning within identity. But that, but that liberated part of you is still part of who it is, who you are. And I know that just in my own conversations, my capacity to, uh, to both relinquish my perspective and take up a perspective in a really invigorated way, has become much easier for me, and I have much more confidence that I can navigate um, these challenges. So, so I think meditation, non-identity, is fundamental. 
listening actually helps us with that non-identity and then being assertive and advocating for a point of view is also important. So it, it becomes art. You know, we're really talking about an art form of conversation that involves the body, the human heart, and the mind. And starting where you are and practicing listening to people who feel differently and practicing expressing your perspective in a way that can be heard when you feel strongly are just two things that are easy to do, but we don't do enough. We tend to move away from it. So, the end also, because we are coming to the end of our time, uh, when people want to connect more with your work, uh, what's the best place to go to? Well, if people would like to connect with my work, they can go to my web- website, which is www.dianemushohamilton.com. I think it's com. I don't know if it's com or org. I think it's com. <laughs> Thanks. And um, also, if you're interested in in compassionate conversation and the skill sets that are articulated in there, you can go to Amazon.com and find it. Thank you, everyone. Ben, thank you very much. Thank you, Thomas. <laughs>